You're listening to My Shadow is My Skin, Voices from the Iranian Diaspora. A special series on What's That Noise? Silence is frequently a byproduct of carrying the burdens and traumas of the past and of a nation's history. But for writers in the Iranian diaspora, many of the challenges of speaking freely, telling their stories, and revealing themselves have shifted and lifted. These writers have begun to loosen their tongues, expressing what is natural to them in the context of their new identities in new languages and locations. They are writing themselves as individuals and artists who are governed by different aesthetics and cultural experiences. Many of these writers are far less fearful about confronting cultural and familial taboos, and as a result, they feel free to tell stories that have been hidden or hushed by secrecy, shame, and trauma. Many of these writers don't see themselves as exclusively Iranian or American, but more so as living and writing in the in-between, a liminal space that one could argue has not left Iranians since they arrived here, and one that overshadows even those born in the United States. As a result, narratives by writers of the Iranian diaspora articulate so much more than one culture and one history. They are composites, versions of Iranian diaspora experience reflected in the dramatic stories that have shaped 20th and 21st century Iran. They are stories that speak to immigration, hyphenation, displacement, alienation, and longing, and to revisiting and revising lives made and informed by history and its ruptures. The wonderful passage that I just shared with you is written by Dr. Persis Karim, Nida Nobari Chair of the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University. It is found in her foreword to a new book called My Shadow is My Skin, Voices from the Iranian Diaspora, a collection of 32 stories that reflect precisely what Dr. Karim means when she says, without stories, we are nothing. Two of the voices behind these powerful stories come from the book's brilliant editors, who you heard at the beginning of the episode, Catherine Whitney and Layla Emery. Catherine, Layla, and their contributors have worked tirelessly together for years to bring us fascinating reflections on deeply rooted issues and insights that are as familiar as they are different from voice to voice, shadow to shadow, skin to skin. A few months ago, I was contacted by Catherine and Layla's publisher, the University of Texas Press. They inquired about reviewing Catherine and Layla's new book on What's That Noise? But after having received the book, and especially after speaking to Catherine and Layla for the first time, it was obvious that these stories deserve much more than a single chat or review. I am very grateful, particularly in a time where we are increasingly distanced from one another, to share powerful stories. Catherine, Layla, and I are indeed proud to present this first episode of My Shadow is My Skin, Voices from the Iranian Diaspora, a special series on What's That Noise? On the 15th of every month, we will release a new interview with a new contributor from the book. We are also so very grateful that our episodes are blessed by the incredible musical talent of a contributor to the book named Dr. Babak Elahi. He is joined by the Resonant Freaks. That's Freaks with a Q. And a great name, if I may. The song you're hearing now, Sinking, and the one at the end, 
called Too High are from their latest album, Error and Trial, which you can find on Spotify and Apple Music. And so our first episode begins with a chat with the book's editors, Catherine and Layla, as they reflect on some important themes and tensions at the heart of each of their contributors' stories. From familial expectation and heritage hiding to escapism and authenticity, these stories are powerful, and they're powerful for many reasons. One of the most important reasons is that they, as we will hear from Catherine and Layla, humanize lived experiences that shouldn't need to be humanized. And yet, they must be. In an age fraught with intolerant nationalist rhetoric and unrelenting Orientalist media, What struck me more than anything in this book is that each of these stories are also timeless. My Shadow Is My Skin does not only share the background of the Iranian diaspora. Its stories are windows into its ongoing experiences. As any writer will attest, no work, no life, no story is ever complete. Our goal in this new series is not only to hear the stories behind the book, but to open up to their continuing expression. The first two stories, about life and the project together, come from our new friends Catherine and Layla, and their stories begin on Rhode Island. Probably about a year into our collaboration, Catherine texted me kind of randomly and said, did you go to St. George's school? I texted her back and I said, yeah, why? She wrote back and she said, so did I. What's weird about this, what's amazingly, you know, just so coincidental about this is the fact that um, St. George's is a boarding school in Newport, Rhode Island. And, you know, although Catherine and I knew that we were each from Massachusetts, neither of us in our wildest dreams would have imagined that we'd both graduated from the same tiny little school in Rhode Island, albeit, albeit, I think, what, 18 years apart, roughly? Yeah, it was it was it was kind of mind blowing because we had been in collaboration for such a long time. We'd we'd sent out all the calls for entry. We met at least once. Layla came to to California. We had one session where we were going through all the all the and um, you know all the pieces the pieces of writing. So we had spent a lot of time together already, and we'd made different connections like. Oh, my dad grew up in Massachusetts. My dad grew up in Massachusetts around the Cape. And we had, so we had all these things in common already, but that one was, and the fact that we hadn't stumbled upon that yet in a, in the year that we've been uh, working together. And it's pretty singular. I mean, yes, there's a tight, you know, there's, it's a small school and there's a lot of alumni spirit around it. So you, I mean, I think the fact that we went at such a degree, we didn't cross paths by any means in terms of years. But in this book, where we're, we're working on, uh, you know, connections across you know time and geography and things. For us to have also have some weird connection was just so rich. On the one hand, it couldn't be farther from the Iranian experience. But I graduated in 1980, and there was the year before I graduated in 1979. There was a an Iranian student, no doubt, came. I mean, I didn't know him well, but no doubt came from um, as a kind of refugee from the Iranian Revolution. And Layla, you also had um, Iranian students, right? I had one Iranian classmate, and I think I I went into that experience. You know, I I had never 
really known any Iranians outside of my family. And this was probably the first person I'd had the opportunity, the first Iranian, other Iranian outside of my family I'd had the opportunity to meet. And I sort of hoped that we could become kindred spirits. And, and, you know, I think when you're uh, 16, 17 years old, that's, that's not necessarily (laughs) uh, always going to happen, but um you know, I might not have been cool enough for him at the time, but yeah. So yes, there, there were two of us, interestingly enough, but I, I also just wasn't tuned in to my Iranian identity at that point. And, you know, there, you know, if I, if I had to go back now, certainly I would have made probably more of an effort there. Layla, it's interesting to hear you reflect upon that being a part of your identity, despite you not necessarily being aware of it at the time. And, and so I'm wondering, when did you first start thinking that your Iranian heritage was an important part of your becoming? Probably when I went to college, to Smith College. And, you know, even there, I, I didn't have any Iranian classmates. I did have the opportunity to befriend people from other Middle Eastern countries and felt this sort of wonderful shared connection with them, even though, you know, our families came from different places. And um, and then my senior year, the September 11th attacks occurred and I experienced some um, unpleasantness at, at school, um, even at uh, such a liberal college. Um, and it, it made me emboldened in, in the sense of wanting to be sort of out and proud about my identity because I felt like I was being told better to sort of hide in a way and conceal. And, and, you know, I was told, well, you don't look Middle Eastern. So, you know, you're, you should be good. You should be fine. You should probably just shouldn't talk about that. And I thought, wait a minute, that's ridiculous. I should, no one should have to do that, you know, to be told you should do that. And then, you know, actively work against it. I think that was really kind of a turning point for me. And I began to write extensively about it in my poetry. And so, yeah, I I think that was really the time that, that my identity started to, to sh- take shape. That's such a very profound reflection of how your identity took shape over time through these inward and outward tensions. And then to be invalidated by someone coming up to you and saying, you don't really need to worry, you don't look Iranian. I mean, it sounds problematic on a lot of different levels, but particularly so in terms of trying to become comfortable in the shadow of your skin. Where do your thoughts go from here? There's been wonderful scholarship around this area. Um, and in fact, uh, somebody who is also a, a Smith College graduate, and I wish we had crossed paths when we were there, uh, a professor at the University of Toronto, um, she teaches sociology there, uh, named Dr. Neda Magboulet, wrote a book, wonderful book called The Limits of Whiteness that deals with this topic with much more nuance and grace than than I can get into. But, but that's a really... Um, really fantastic book that that goes into great detail. And um, yeah. You know, I grew up in, in a small coastal town in Massachusetts and, and it was the town where my father had grown up and my parents were from New England. So I had lived a very um, local New England kind of life really until I went to college. I went to college in North Carolina at Duke and that's where I met my husband. So my um, introduction into the Iranian culture came through him, and he was not very, um, he didn't really identify, and still doesn't really identify super strongly as Iranian by nationality, but he's got the culture ingrained in him, which is something that for me was very confusing for a long time until I 
with writing about it helped me understand um, that piece. In terms of you know connecting to the greater Iranian diaspora, I always felt pretty much on the outside of it, uh, and then I I gained a little agency through parenthood. You know, I had this child who was really super interested in everything Iranian. And given that her dad wasn't as interested as I was in exploring it, she and I took it up together. And um, that's where I really learned a lot about Iranian culture. And then and I wrote about it. I published a little bit about it. And then in terms of you know zooming up into the more present term in this book, there was a, and this is where Layla and I intersected, uh, Persis Karim and Anita Amirazvani in Berkeley offered a writing workshop on Iranian identity. And I remember writing them and saying, do I have an Iranian identity? I'd like to, I'd like to, I mean, this is what I've been doing over the past few years and this is what my story is. And they, I mean, I think that, you know, I've got an immediate response. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, and that began this, began this odyssey of uh, understanding what the, what the Iranian diaspora is and who's a member of it. And we, I just feel so lucky to have landed in that little workshop because Persis and Anita had this, have this very inclusive idea about what the Iranian diaspora is. And that and a part, an important part of that idea is that it's changing and diversifying as each generation spends more time, you know, away from Iran. So uh, I got, a, I, I, by the time I, well, the, by the time this book came out, I, I, I have much more confidence standing up and saying, I, you know, Catherine Whitney, without a trace of Iranian, anything in my name from Massachusetts, you know, I'm part of the Iranian diaspora and here's why. So that, that was, that's kind of, it's kind of empowering. And, and it's really, it's, it's can be, the, the Iranian crowd can be, um, it can be a tough crowd, you know, it can be kind of a little bit intimidating sometimes. And I had had that experience certainly over the course of being, um, you know, both being to, to Iran with my husband and, you know, just meeting distant relatives. So to, so I didn't always have as much confidence as I have now, which is, I feel like a gift from Persis and Anita and Layla and all the writers in our, and that have contributed essays to the book. My goodness. That's, that's a thing, isn't it? It's such a perplexing problem that someone, regardless of their background, might feel as though they need permission before they can say inwardly, or outwardly that they belong. We kind of didn't know what we were looking for necessarily when we embarked on this project. Um, we knew we wanted to compile an anthology and we knew we wanted it to be uh, creative nonfiction. There were like, those were the absolutes. And we, we knew that we wanted to focus on writing from the Iranian diaspora. But as far as the themes, that kind of came about quite organically and quite beautifully, actually, because rather than us imposing a particular vision onto the book, one sort of emerged all on its own. You know, we started to receive submissions of these really wonderful essays. Then at that point, I think we, we started to see, okay, this is what the anthology can be. And so what we ended up with was a book that encompasses many different themes not just uh, Iranian identity, although that's a huge part of it. 
you know, other more specific themes of religious identity, sexual orientation, intermarriage, immigration, trauma of all sorts, um, and how trauma can kind of be passed down sometimes from generation to generation. It covers a wide range of themes, but I don't think it does so in a ham-fisted way. I feel like it does so in a way that's accessible and yet hopefully provides something new for people. Partway through, you know, as, we, as, as essays started to trickle in, submissions started to trickle in, we did find that there, was, there were two rough big pools, right? There were kind of leaving Iran in 1979 pool and that was a certain story. There was a certain arc to those stories, which had to do with, you know, leaving, coming to the U.S., then at some point going back to Iran and seeing how things had changed. And there's always a passage through the airport. Those, those like we call that the airport and passport um, stories. And then we found there was another group of stories that were really modern. And I think that we got excited about that. We started thinking these are the, these are as you said, revelatory and daring. Like they were telling stories that hadn't been told before. And what's interesting is the first pool of stories were almost identical. I mean, they were different in terms of character and writing ability. There, there, you know, there are a lot of things that were um, distinguished them one from another, but it was a, but it was the arc of the story was very similar. And these other stories were really diverse. And then we we even had some where there was one story in particular that I'm thinking of that that was beautifully written story, but there was something you could tell there was something missing. Like there there was something in the way that I read the story. I'm like, there's this point to this point. What's the what's the story underneath? You're coming to these really profound conclusions, but you're not telling us something. And it was something that the author had never written about and was afraid to write about because it's deeply personal and had to do with her family and. So we just said, we said to her, you know, why don't you just write it? You don't have to publish it. You don't even have to show it to us, but write it and see what happens, you know, like see what happens for yourself. When the details came up and it was, it was a great experience for her as well, just to sort of sew the whole story to get, sew as an SEW, the whole story together, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of beautiful for us too. So that, that, that became that kind of drive, like we want these stories that, that aren't told, and there is a culture of not telling, but right? you know, like hiding the, the taboo subjects. The, the there are stories that we don't want to, we don't want other people to know, and we're going to present a good front. Um, and I don't know that that's not dirt, not airing their dirty laundry. Right. I don't know if that's something that's particular to. I don't know if that's a diasporic thing, or if it's Iranian, or if it's you know maybe because it's a country that's been vilified, and in a certain way they want to present the good stories, which you can understand. Um, not that these other stories are bad, but they're, but they're personal and they're intimate and they're, um, it makes you, they're vulnerable. I think that that's a, a huge reason why oftentimes Iranians feel that they can't be forthcoming about these things. And certainly I, I don't think that's, that's unique to Iranians at all, but I agree. I think the vilification with regard to the media and, uh, and in politics I think that that has many Iranians in a position of feeling like they need to kind of buy into an exceptionalism narrative where it's better to to share sort of the quote unquote better or more favorable parts of ourselves or our backgrounds. And, and you know, sometimes that means focusing on accomplishments and things like that rather than 
the skeletons in the closet, so to speak. And actually, I, 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 I hate that. I hate that phrase. Or even the struggles. The right. struggles. Right, right. Yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, that's that's where the meat of, of so many of these stories was. Like, though, though that was, those were the gems. Yeah, yeah. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. And, and our authors dug so deep. And, you know, as you, as you mentioned, Catherine, some of them have filed these memories away or these thoughts away and yeah. uh, maybe never written about them before, maybe never talked about them before. And for some of them, this is really, you know, the first time that they've had the, the opportunity to do that. And, and we're really pleased about that. I mean, that feels like one of the the biggest gifts and there have been so many, but that feels like one of, one of the biggest is just being able to share stories like this with a wide audience and help people not feel alone. There really is so very much that your readers and your contributors and yourselves very clearly have taken from your wonderful new book. And it, it makes me really curious about how this, this project came together. Could you share with us a bit more about how you planned for this project and how it unfolded? You know, we had a multiple stages of our um, assembly, if you will, of the, of the collection. We, we started by asking for essays, asking for uh, contributions. And then we started, because we were just became steeped in the subject matter, though both creative nonfiction and poetry and expression online, we would stumble on different essays, either you know, we introduced to new writers or, or through their writing. And we would, yeah, I can't tell you how many texts I would get from Layla that would say, OMG, with an exclamation point and a link, you know, <laughs> like, oh my God, who's this? And we would, um, so like, then we, we would have practice. to get that person. How do we, how we can we, to. how can we get our hands on their writing for this anthology? And then we would track them down. In some cases, they would, uh, you know, some cases they wrote a piece for the anthology, and in other cases they gave permission for us to re to reprint it. Um, you know, we, in, the, in the anthology, which was really great. And I think another thing, Layla, we would we because we have a certain number of pieces that were previously published, and I think we wanted, to, in addition to that kind of iterative uh, organic process, we wanted to have certain things represented. You know, he wanted to have people know about the, the that sort of 1979 era when people were leaving Iran. Like we wanted to sort of touch on all these different historical data points so that when someone who didn't know a lot about Iran or Iranian history could read the whole collection and get a sense of that big picture, but but without reading a history, right? Exactly. And, and we didn't want um, sort of a, a singular experience to... We didn't want a singular experience to define the, the book, right? We didn't want it just to be narratives yes. from one. I mean, you could have a, a lot of different different people telling a story of the same time period, which which actually exists, right? I mean, of there course. are collections of stories about that period of time when when uh, the, at the beginning of the revolution, when people were leaving Iran, and they're and they're vivid and and we had some. We had you know we had some um, stories from that time too that were. I just remember there was one about a woman who was giving birth, you know, mm. an American woman who's giving birth in an American in a hospital in Iran during the revolution, as it was unfolding, like shooting on the streets, that kind of thing. So there, those stories are worthy of telling and interesting. And even you know, if 
we could have decided to do that, um, you know, take it from a certain perspective and time and note the variety of voices. But right. this was like, I think we sort of settled on really contemporary voices, you know, untold stories and yes. emerging writers. So that was those things really drove us. So if we if we could find uh, like that the Venn diagram that had all three of those, we, we were like we were the right. trifecta. We were really excited. Like, That's right. We wanted yeah. to celebrate, you know, people who hadn't necessarily published or who who were kind of not easily categorized. You know, there's that intersectionality piece. You know, they're not just right. in the diaspora, but they're also and and I think we wanted this to be something new and different and um, yeah and be kind of transgressive and push push boundaries yeah. in that way and maybe push buttons for some people yeah. and and be yeah. really bold yeah yeah and we did you know we um just to speak to that piece about taboo we kind of had to convince people to go ahead with publication of their piece that's you know, right like i don't i don't know um you know they got, <laughs> people got cold feet and yes. we're like and we sometimes, understand. and sometimes those were the pieces that we were most intrigued by Completely. and where we yeah. were, we would just say to ourselves, you know, oh, yeah. we cannot lose this essay. Right. I mean, this is so yeah. special. This is really, this is telling such an important story. This is one that people need to read. And, and I think we got really lucky, um, just in, in, in trying to take a human human approach with those those writers and and just explain to them how what they were doing was incredibly bold and brave and important and and I think right. we we ended up um, with some amazing amazing pieces. Yeah. yeah. Regular listeners of this show know that I am a self-professed fan of tensions. I find them incredibly insightful and very very productive. There's a really fascinating one in my mind's eye right now as I imagine myself in my skin casting a shadow. As I socialize into my skin, there seems to be no shortage of negative literary conventions around shadows. What are your thoughts? I think part of that came about when we were trying to decide on on a title. Yes, and sections. And sections. And when we, when we were discussing yeah. kind of the implications of that word shadow. Yeah, right, right duality mm -hmm. light light and darkness you yeah. know that that notion of duality was a big one for us that's right and i don't and i think we wanted to hopefully the book speaks for itself in this way but i i think we wanted to steer clear of having people regard that the concept of of shadow in this case as being, you know, fully negative. Right. Because um, it's not, yeah. it's not. Not at all. It's not accurate. It's not, um, it's not really the case. And even, even the essays that deal with, uh, you know, episodes of trauma or other types of really difficult subject matter, there are moments of, of lightness in there. So there's a, just a lovely balance, I think. I was just thinking about you know, the title comes from Cyrus Copeland's essay, just that quote, for the past 40 years, I've taken my shadow, my Iranian heritage, and inverted it. My shadow is my skin. I advertise it. Mm -hmm. And we said, you know, the first section of the book is called Light and Shadow. We, you know, and this is from the introduction, explores secrets kept and told, stories of shame turned to pride, accounts of people emerging from the shadows to claim their true identities. We also talked about the notion that some of these authors have 
felt as though their shadow, and that could be, you know, many different things. It could be trauma, it could be identity, it could be um, secrets, um, whatever that shadow might be, that that is something that they can't escape or can't cast off or can't step out of the shadow of. And then other, other authors who write about fully being able to do that. Some authors talk about not wanting to do that. And, and I think it's interesting that, that that concept sort of weaves its way throughout the entire anthology. I think we were both very happy with the title because it's poetic and we wanted to get at something poetic. We wanted it to be mysterious. But I think Layla's right in that all the stories can be interpreted or can rest nicely underneath the the poetry and the nuance and the uh, uh, metaphor. One of the many consequences of the Trump administration's drone strike on Baghdad International Airport earlier this year wasn't that it was merely a spectacular failure in global diplomacy. It was definitely that. But the subsequent coverage of the Soleimani assassination seems to have placed the lives of so many Iranians in the diaspora on hold because racialized questions were popping up all over the place. Fortunately, we have your book. It does an excellent job of conveying that the lived experience of the Iranian diaspora exists well beyond these spontaneous political mishaps. What are some of the takeaways that you yourselves or your contributors or your readers have benefited from thus far? One thing that comes to mind is that is that we feel as though the book, and this was not something that I anticipated happening. I think Layla and I have talked about this, that it's really for, we've become this community, the, the community of writers, um, and we're of these shared stories, and we're and it's a really friendly, it's a friendly community, and uh, even though our book readings and our our ability to join in you know real community with bodies in the same place together which we had hoped to do for readings and other celebratory events even though that was cut short by the corona Mm -hmm. pandemic we still have been i feel like we've been forming communities online and bringing people in and introducing people to um to these stories and widening and diversifying the audience and kind of getting that word out and it's and it's a it seems to be kind of a friendly and inquisitive um community of people who are curious there's some kind of hook for 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 people to to join in i agree i think i think that what happened in january has it's done many things it's reignited tensions. Certainly it's made things worse for um, Iranians with regard to immigration and travel. Um, It's made things abysmal with regard to um, the coronavirus uh, and sanctions and sanctions upon sanctions. And yet it's also kind of reignited interest in Iran and Iranians it feels sort of odd to say that because it's not necessarily a good thing that it takes things like this to make people curious or interested. Mm-hmm. But I feel as though we, in some small measure with the book, are able to add to that conversation, but add to it in a way that pushes back right. on the vilification and the really reductive, stereotypical 
um, representations um, in the media that seem never ending and certainly um, by the Trump administration. And, and that's good. That's important. And it seems more important than ever. And and, and we always say this more, more important yes. than ever, but in sp- specifically about this, you know, this incident in January and the political situation of travel bans, I mean, we're set, our government, the U S government is separating families and it's, and people can't, you know, that that's very, it's a very human story where you can't go back to mm-hmm. an elder relative's funeral or, or, or an elder or a relative can't come and witness a birth in this country um, or either, either country for that matter. There's, there's, um, there's huge human cost and to have a real face on the, on the, you know, these, these stories bring the humanity and the diversity and the nuance of people's lives that are being disrupted. And when, mm-hmm. when the country and its people are, are, are sort of characterized in a monolithic way, you lose that. And I think also just, you know, our treatment of uh, our being the U.S. government's treatment of the country of Iran affects the citizens of Iran. I mean, it's a, it's a debate between governments, but the citizens of both countries suffer. And there's this population in this country that I think goes unheard from in some ways when, well, the population of Iran goes unheard from because they, you know, they don't have a public voice and it gets out around the edges. But um, I think for the people, for non-Iranians living in the U.S., it's, it's important, critical even, to have this, have these stories to have real human beings represented in times like this. Right. I agree with that. And I also feel like, you know, we've, we've talked at length about the, the desire to, to humanize. And while on the one hand, it's so important to, you know, build empathy and to provide that nuance, have to be humanized in order to be regarded as human beings, to be, you know, worthy of dignity, to be allowed in this country, to be allowed to study here, to be allowed to see um, grandparents. And, and yet that's what stories do, right? They do, they do humanize. Um, They do share people's lived experiences and, and how more important could that be? And as you said, we keep saying to ourselves, I mean, we've, we've said it so many times over the past five years, but for different reasons. Oh, this is, this is, it's more, the book is more important now than ever. No, now it's more important than ever, but it's true. And it's, you know, and although it seems certainly in the past few years, like we've moved from disaster to disaster, you know, nary a, a place for pause in between, maybe that is a small gift um, in the midst of all of that, that these stories can and will continue to affect people in, in many different ways beyond just this this current moment that we're living in. Yeah, let's hope so. I mean, I think to, to speak to that question, mm-hmm. um, Tommy, about uh, for them, that Layla was leading into also just to, the, the, the temporal aspect I mean, I think I I hope that we have will inspire a new generation of writers who are thinking about who's going to read this, who are we directing this to? You know, and one of our audiences was for sure the the academy and university because it's, it's put out by University Press, but also included under that, I think we thought about high school students, and um, and then the hopes that 
that you know Persis and Anita's writing workshop could be uh, um, replicated in um, you know in high schools and Farsi classes and you know groups of students around the country and produce more writing, which is really you know that contributes to this ongoing story and hopefully that'll happen. I agree. And I think with respect to non-Iranian readers of the book, and I'm, I'm thrilled that we have those, maybe this means that for those who are just learning about the diaspora and how diverse it is and how interesting and how nuanced, maybe what that means is, you know, if they're at the Thanksgiving table with their family members and they hear you know, a comment being made about Iran or, the, or Iranians or, you know, something has just, you know, come out in the news that is causing uh, people in their lives to say things that simply aren't true, maybe that will empower those readers to push back on that and say, hey, that's not accurate. And also, I think we hope that certainly for our emerging, you know, some of the people who in this book are published for the first time, exactly. this will give them a kind of launching pad to keep on writing. But I think, I know there's some people who are not, who don't identify as, or didn't come into this identifying as writers necessarily, but I hope that this gives them that platform to continue to write about their experience and, you know, their ongoing experience of the diaspora. And just to speak, my, from my own personal you know, position, I've written a couple pieces uh, 15 years apart. And, you know, the, it's the thing, my, my um, experience of being in the diaspora has, has changed a lot in my, you know, over that period of time. And it was helpful to have the opportunity to go through the experience of writing mm -hmm. it and understand yeah. it more deeply, right? Time, not just in terms of length, but of scope and of longevity, and of continuation. It's such a vitally important dimension of your book. It's truly relevant because it is a strong reminder that stories continue to influence and guide and inform. And so stories don't merely exist in the past, do they? When we first started this, working on this anthology, and it was 2015, um, we were sort of on the cusp of uh, the nuclear deal being reached and what seemed to be, uh, you know, an opening up um, in terms of dialogue between Iran and the U.S. Um, and, and now here we are and, you know, we have a Muslim ban in place. We have continued daily, it seems, vitriol against Iran and Iranians by, by the Trump administration. And, you know, it's I think that's really why, well, that's one of the main reasons why we keep repeating, oh, this book is more relevant than ever. Right. So it, so it, it stays relevant because of current events. And then I was thinking about another temporal piece about how the stories throughout the book, they're, they're, they sit in different time periods in time, right? We really do have some that stretch back to 1979, mm -hmm. but even before, and then we have things that are super, really contemporary. And that is it, uh, you know, we, we, we liked that arc for a number of reasons. That's right. But to be able to have, I mean, that's, oh, this is something. So it's like, you know, you have kind of a long memory, you know, a, 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 a more, a writing about something that's more, more, more of an integrated memory um, because that happened a long time ago. And you and the writer, the author, narrator has kind of figured things out. And then you have mm -hmm. things that are much more, extemporaneous and current and almost 
stream of consciousness. I'm so excited to hear from your contributors about their stories and how they carry on personally and professionally. And I hope that by engaging your group, we can learn about the ongoing, never-ending story of this Iranian diaspora as well. It has been such an absolute pleasure, Layla and Catherine, having you both on the show. I can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much for your timelessly important and fascinating contributions. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your efforts. Thank you. appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have a topic or guest in mind, don't hesitate to get in touch with Tommy on Twitter at WTNCast. And please check out the My Shadow Is My Skin Twitter account at IRAN Musings. You can also find My Shadow Is My Skin on Facebook and Instagram. In light of the hardships we are facing right now, on behalf of Catherine, Layla, and their contributors, we encourage you to visit childrenofpersia.org to aid them in their support of victims of COVID-19 in Iran. Stay tuned for bi-weekly episodes, and until next time, keep listening to the noise.